Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Boy, I have barely been here this summer, man. I got to tell you, which is like, it's good. I got to travel a lot, but it's also exhausting. Been all over the place, was uh, traveling around for a few weeks in North Carolina and Texas, and then went to Europe for a few weeks, and then came back and went to Chicago. Man, oh man, feeling a little crazy. So it's time to get grounded. School's about to start. Back to business, right? Anyway, today we're going to do an Ask Buck episode. Now, this is long overdue, I know, and so some of these questions are actually even a little old. If you want to submit any questions to the shows, uh, go to wealthformula.com. Wealthformula.com, of course, is the place where you can get access to a number of the resources that are not available just by listening to the program, including uh, signing up for our various lists, such as our Investor Club list. And also, if you're really interested in sort of joining the community at large with an ongoing discussion you know, consider joining Wealth Formula Network. You can find out more information at wealthformularoadmap.com. And basically, it starts out with a course, but it ends up kind of morphing into a community where, you know, you have online uh, communications via Facebook, but also we have a bi-weekly Zoom call. And actually, it's now it's even more than bi-weekly now because we've added a, an occasional crypto call Uh, or we should call it maybe crypto and alternative, alternative assets. So last week we even started talking about, oh man, like watches and uh, cars and stuff like that. Anyway, check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. So when we come back, uh, I'm going to start probably a series of multiple Ask Buck shows. There's lots of questions. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. 
The wealth formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Of course, this is, again, uh, Ask Buck. Uh, these questions have been accumulating uh, probably since like May or so. By the way, if you want to, again, add some questions, go to WealthFormula.com. You'll see the Ask Buck button, and you can actually record your uh, question, which is generally what I prefer because I think it's more fun that way. But if you want to, you can just, you know, write a question as well. And I'm happy to address that as well. Anyway, let's start with the recorded questions again, because that's what I, I generally like better. So let's get through those first and let's start now. Hi, Buck. Uh, please tell us your general opinion about investing in opportunity zones. And uh, please tell us whether you would ever consider creating an opportunity zone fund that we can invest in. Thanks, Buck. Well, that's a uh, it's an interesting question. So let's start out with what exactly are our opportunity zones. Um, so opportunity zones are essentially, you know, they're, they're an economic development tool that allows people to invest in distressed areas in the United States. And it, it could be for real estate, but it can also be for businesses and stuff like that. Um, the idea is to spur economic growth, job creation in low-income communities, um, and at the same time provide tax benefits to investors to to encourage this whole thing. So these funds um, are appealing potentially to investors because uh, investing in them can either potentially defer or eliminate capital gains taxes of all kinds. So investors, um, basically what you can do is you can place existing assets with accumulated capital gains into these funds, right? And those existing capital gains are then not taxed until either the end of 2026 or when the asset uh, disposition occurs. So for capital gains placed in opportunity funds for at least five years, investors get a uh, jump up in basis of 10%, which means basically, okay, um, you pay capital gains on 10% less, I get, essentially. And if you're invested uh, for at least seven years, the investor's basis jumps up by 15%, and all that's fine. But the big thing is for investments held for at least 10 years, investors pay no taxes on the capital gains produced through their investment uh, in opportunity funds. So that all sounds, you know, that uh, that sounds great, right? It sounds like a um, not a bad deal at all, but especially, um, you know, if you have no, if you have to pay no capital gains on profits uh, uh, after a decade. Um, so yeah, initially when this came out, everybody was super excited about it. Um, here's the problem in my view, my opinion, first of all, you know, rehabilitation of very downtrodden places is difficult in the first place. Okay. Inherently there's substantially more risk 
to these kinds of acquisitions than those in markets that are already emerging that we already know uh, have got a lot of momentum behind them. So these are markets that, you know, really are kind of an absolute mess and there's no reason necessarily to uh, to go in there thinking that it, it's going to turn around. So, you know, obviously in our group, we do a lot of this sort of value add stuff in communities. They're usually blue collar communities but they're enraging markets. These are not enraging markets. That's why these are opportunity zones, right? So anyway, so that's one of the problems. Next, now, most operators in the real estate space that I've spoken to, including obviously our own operators um, through Western Wealth Capital and and uh, through Turo, but also, you know, operators like Kenny McElroy, we discussed this and, you know, from from the syndicator's perspective, people are used to doing uh, value add. These are not particularly appealing uh, parameters that are set uh, when you when you when you are involved with one of these in order to you know to make it count as an opportunity zone. And namely, one of the big issues, um, you know, outside of the fact that you're in these places that are hit or miss in the future, is the amount of capital expenditures required in these projects. It's really excessive. They want you to put a lot of money into these things. And um, it makes it, frankly, more difficult to make money in those. Another problem, the idea that you're investing in areas that are in need of economic stimulation um, might lead you to expect that, you know, you're going to get a discount compared to nicer areas, right? I mean, this makes sense. The place is downtrodden. Why would you, you know, shouldn't it be at a discount? Well, the problem is, that opportunity zones themselves, um, you know, have essentially attracted a premium now. So now you've got a bunch of opportunity funds all trying to take advantage of an area and and it drives prices up. And of course, that affects your return because you're not buying things at a discount. You're buying them at a premium compared to where the market is now. Um, So in effect, the benefits of the um, taxes uh, have already been baked in on the purchase price. So again, I don't see, I don't see a lot of value in this, um, compared to the amount of risk. That's my concern. Um, and I have yet to find an operator that I think I could do a good job that, that can do a good job at making money for people on a consistent basis with this model. If we thought we could do it, we would do it. Right. I mean, this is value-add stuff, and if we thought it was really useful and that investors could make a lot of money doing it, we'd be doing it, but we're not. Um, does that mean that we'll never do it? I don't know. It doesn't. I mean, it, but right now, it's not something that we think is necessarily the best way to go. You can always, um, you know, find someone who says they're going to make you money, but in reality, uh, you know, in this space too, again, because it's attracting a lot of money from the retail space, there's a lot of charlatans you got to be careful of. Uh, my last thought on this is that, listen, locking away profits for 10 years in hopes of not paying taxes, I don't know if it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, that's a tremendous amount of risk, especially if this is a great big uh, capital gain or liquidity event. I just, uh, I don't know if I want to take that kind of risk. And in terms of, uh, especially right now with other opportunities uh, in place, for example, if your capital gains were from property, from real estate, I mean, you could reinvest that and use bonus depreciation. And in many cases, bonus depreciation is actually going to be a better deal for people than even doing a 1031 exchange. And it's 100% bonus depreciation this year. 
Uh, of course, uh, next year it'll decrease um, down to 80%. Uh, and then another 20% after that. But there's still a significant opportunity, uh, you know, to make uh, money rapidly. I mean, uh, even without this kind of um, opportunity zone thing, right? So say you did your, you know, bonus depreciation uh, for, for capital gains on real estate, and now you didn't pay taxes on that. And then, you know, our divestments, as you probably know, typically uh, in, in multifamily real estate specifically, are yielding over you know thirty percent annualized returns in general, so which means you're doubling your money in every three years. So, what's the point of locking up for ten years and not getting any benefit at all? Okay, so that's my opinion. More importantly, you know, I guess the bottom line is we're doing assets that are in really good markets that that we already know that creates a substantial risk mitigation. Uh, so. Most of my syndicator colleagues do not think it's worthwhile uh, as an endeavor from the operations side. Anyway, good luck to you. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that helps with uh, your analysis of the situation, but that's, uh, that's mine. Now, I think this question might be from the same person. Here's another one. Hi, Buck. I was hoping you could give me a clear understanding about whether 100% of the losses I will see on the K-1s from my Western Wealth Investments uh, from bonus depreciation this year can be used to reduce the capital gains that I will see on the stocks that I am selling this year. Or do these types of gains and losses reside in separate buckets for some specific tax reason? I'm not a real estate professional with any gains from real estate sales. So that's why I'm asking the question. Thanks a lot, Buck. So, yeah, you're not a real estate professional. And as a reminder, I'm not a CPA because I don't want to get myself in trouble. So anything I tell you uh, is from my own, you know, what I've heard. I'm just a guy who knows a guy, right? So um, anyway, my general understanding is that there is, of course, a difference between various types of income, okay? Your gains from stocks would be considered portfolio income. And uh, so portfolio income is a different kind of income than real estate. So therefore, profits from portfolio income cannot be offset by the losses via vis-a-vis -vis depreciation on real property, right? That sort of sucks because as you, I'm sure you know, uh, the bonus depreciation does not work against active ordinary income either, right? So uh, basically you've got, you know, this this IRS kind of barricade of losses and, and there's not much we can do about it without changing le legislation. So now bonus depreciation from real estate is there primarily to allow you to use against other passive sources of income. So it might not just be real estate, right? I mean, that's certainly one way you got passive. If you have passive capital gains from real estate, the idea would be uh, that you could offset that by reinvesting that in something else um, and then getting the depreciation on that. Now, um, I can tell you that I'm, I'm just about to do that because I finally sold my house at a, um, is in Chicago and that I was renting out for a while. And uh, now I've got, you know, I think I've got a few hundred thousand dollars of, of recapture because I did a cost segregation analysis. And then I have, you know, another few hundred thousand dollars of, uh, of profit. Um, 
And then what's going to happen is if I invest that and leverage it, I should be able to knock out all of the recapture and the capital gains through the passive losses that would come from the acquisition uh, using bonus depreciation and um, uh, after cost segregation analysis. By the way, if this discussion of both bonus depreciation and all that business is confusing go back to one of our last ask buck shows because we talk about this all of the time so anyway again i'm not a tax professional however here's my understanding is a bonus depreciation uh if you get real estate can offset you know all kinds of passive uh, ordinary income that's not portfolio income so property there's a number of people in um uh, our group in our in our network who have ownership of businesses that are passive, such as surgical centers, infusion centers. They they're not involved in day to day activity. Therefore, these are considered passive uh, endeavors, and and therefore the depreciation can be from from real estate can be used to offset again the, because of these businesses this income is ordinary income, but it's passive. Therefore, that's why you can use you know bonus depreciation on that. Uh, bottom line though, going back to your original question in, in your case, uh, I wish it were not the case, but I don't think it's going to work for you because you've got portfolio capital gains. And, um, that's one of the, another reason that, you know, I'm not a big fan of stocks in general myself. So, uh, you just don't have the tax benefits that you do in real estate. Now, one last thing, of course, uh, I should add, and again, I'm not a CPA, but I'll add one more element here again that if you are a real estate professional one of the benefits is yes you you could take your losses from the depreciation offset it against any kind of income that's my understanding and as a real estate professional i've seen this firsthand but anyway that's it uh, for that question thanks uh, thanks for asking all right next question hey buck thanks for all that you do my question is when investing as an LP into a deal, is the time the money is spent sitting in a fund account before and after the deal is closed uh, or sold taken into account when determining the return on investment? And if not, what would you say is a typical amount of time to consider when factoring in the time the money sits in a fund account before a deal is closed or after a deal is sold? Thank you for your time and expertise. So this is a really good question because it addresses one of the reasons that I don't like real estate funds as a general rule. And that's why in our investor club, you almost never see them. Um, why? Well, let's say someone wants to start a $100 million blind fund and acquire a bunch of real estate through it. Okay. Let's just say that. And, and you get you so they get their money raised. And then what? That's when you, you know, go out and look for properties to buy. Now, there are certainly been times in the last few years where it would be relatively easy to deploy that uh, much capital if you you know if you had access to to deal flow but it's uh but it's not always the case i mean look at right now what if you just started a hundred million dollar fund three months ago you know opportunities right now are sparse and you would be forced uh therefore to to buy properties that uh, you know just so that you're not losing money uh by holding on to cash you'd be forced to buy properties that you might not otherwise uh, want to buy. You know, it really just comes down to what I would call the efficiency of capital. I mean, the way I prefer to do things, you have a specific asset, 
big apartment building, whatever, you know exactly how much money you need to acquire. And you know, generally the approximately the amount of capital expenditures you'd like to add um, to the uh, capital raise. And you're not raising uh, very much more than that, if any. And the fact that you don't have very much dead money sitting there waiting to deploy maximizes the returns for investors. That's, you know, it's just basic math, right? I mean, you got a hundred million bucks and you're sitting on 50 million and, um, and that 50 million is just losing uh, buying power. I mean, over time, anyway, funds always have a lot of money sitting around too. And, and, you know, that's, again, it's just not efficient. It's not a really good way to make money in my opinion. Of course, even with specific assets, the way that we do it, uh, you have an apartment building. Typically, with every opportunity, the, oper- uh, the operator is going to give you an idea when the closing is, and it's typically going to be within a couple weeks of the funding deadline. So, if, if you uh, if you are funding, you know, shortly before the deadline, um, you know, you probably have a tack on about two to three weeks um, until your until the closing. So that's you know dead time. And then uh, conservatively, you know, when there's a disposition, you're selling the, when the property is getting sold, you may not get your money. I would say an average of about three to four weeks um, after the closing of the real estate project after disposition. So all in all, I mean, you're looking at probably, you know, a month and a half, two months of additional hold time. Now, of course, uh, I think the what you referenced earlier, you're wondering, you know, what numbers the operators are showing you what they're really showing you is at the project level right i mean uh, returns are calculated from the day you close to the day when you sell the property um and you know uh, but but you're right you've added in a couple extra months and hopefully it doesn't make a big difference in term and you've made a bunch of money but that extra hold time does technically reduce uh, the return as a function of time and again in in the case of Specific assets, I think the math, if it were me, I'd probably just tack on a couple extra months if you really want to try to figure out, um, you know, how much effect that has on your return. Good question, though. All right, let's see. Hey, Buck, this is Evan from San Luis Obispo, California. I'm wondering if rising mortgage rates will make it so that multifamily operators will be less likely to do a refinance. Thank you. Yeah, Evan, uh, absolutely. I think that's absolutely the case. So in our portfolio, we have a number of properties that we were planning on doing a refi this year that now we're really not so sure about that. And we're just now holding on. The reason, of course, is that rising interest rates mean higher mortgage payments as most of these loans and commercial real estate are floating. And then refinancing will will essentially, what that does is it takes out equity and then it'll reduce the overall net income of a property. And that's really not what you want to do in a volatile rate situation like we're in right now. Now, the good news for our investors, again, is, you know, I, I just bring this because I know there's a bunch of people in this kind, in in lots of real estate right now in our investor group. Um, The good news for our investors, these properties are doing really well. So we are actually more likely to, I would say, sell these properties earlier uh, than than a performer than to refi because I think that would be a less risky proposition. So so what are we waiting for? 
if we if we think it might be a good idea to sell? Well, part of the problem is that the lending markets, I shouldn't say part of the problem. I would say the majority of the problem is the lending markets are volatile, right? Because of all this uh, rate uh, movement, lenders have gotten very conservative with both leverage, um, Fannie, Freddie, very, very poor leverage uh, offered, and the spreads um, between SOFR, which is what replaced LIBOR in the actual lending rate, those spreads have, have gone way up uh, in the private lending market. So effectively, buyers are not lining up to buy right now. They are waiting. So to be a seller in the, this environment is a little tricky, right? The, the number of active buyers has easily been reduced tenfold in the last six months. Um, and I'm talking about, you know, big institutions and family offices and stuff like that. They're just not buying. So if you want to maximize what you sell your property for, it may not be the best time to sell, right? You want a bunch of, you know, ravenous uh, buyers out there to overbid, kind of like bring your own trailer, right? You ever been, you know, that's uh, that car, that car thing. Uh, you should check it out. It's kind of cool to see but there's basically you know you, people have these vintage cars and they're really cool but they always end up going for way over what they should because there's a lot of people looking at them anyway i digress bottom line is with our property that we have we're not worried about losing anything uh it's just a matter of time before lending markets stabilize and when they do everyone will go back to work and we'll start selling properties and consider refinances and all of that yeah, hopefully that answers your question, or at least, uh, at least kind of addresses something peripheral to it. Okay, I think this is the last one we will do today. Hi, Buck. I'm curious to know what the current increase in interest rates will do to apartment syndications uh, in terms of asset performance. I know a lot of operators forecast a refinance um, or even a lower interest rate when they initially do their pro forma. So I'd like to get your insight on this. So yeah, this, you know, this question again relates um, very much to the one before. I would just say again that the lending markets are really driving what's going on in real estate, um, in the real estate markets right now, especially, you know, in multifamily, that's what, you know, where we're, we're focused. And again, that's why you're not seeing many refis and why you are seeing um, why you are not seeing a bunch of transactions. However, again, I'll take this opportunity to emphasize that personally, I'm not worried. I'm not worried overall. And believe me, if there was if this market was in trouble, I'd be very worried because I have, you know, the vast majority of my net worth, you know, bulldozed into these uh into these assets so i'm i'm not worried uh, especially for property that we have in our um investor club portfolio which is the stuff that i invest in uh, we are in the business of value add and that's really really important in this kind of environment our whole model is predicated on driving up rents right uh, we're not a buy and hope model we are focused all the time and driving up rents. And so interest rates are high right now, but that doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? They're high because inflation is high. And so interest rates are following that. But guess what? If inflation is high, 
we ramp up our rent even more than when inflation is not high, right? So we basically cancel that out. And that's why multifamily in the hands of competent operators is a hedge against inflation. Now, I do believe that there's a chance you're going to see some struggling properties uh, that you're going to hear about. And I think that is going to happen because in reality, you know, there's a lot of syndicators in the last, you know, six, seven years who hopped on board and um, their approach has, has been relatively lazy or, you know, just they, they're not really pushing rents. They're not creating value. And in the last several years, it's been very easy for people to make money uh, by doing nothing but just holding on and, and waiting for, you know, and, and hoping for, for rents to go up and for people to bid higher uh, because of uh, lower cap rates. Well, that, that environment, it's just not there anymore. So for people who are buying, who've, uh, syndicators who've bought and who are not into the mindset of driving up rents, this could be a difficult time. Uh, and I think that um, is yet to be seen I haven't heard of a lot of that kind of stuff happening yet, but I mean, that I wouldn't be surprised if, if you did see that. But again, the good news is this is what we're built for. Anyway, um, yeah, well, so let's take a break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you uh, enjoyed this session of Ask Buck. Of course, we'll have uh, another one next week, and then I don't know how many weeks in a row we'll have them. We have a lot of questions as a reminder, if you want to add to that load of questions, uh, go to wealthformula.com. I prefer to hear your voice, but if you're shy, just write it down and I'll get to it as well. Try not to be too specific uh, about questions with regard to various investments and things like that because I can't really answer them in public. So try to be somewhat general, even if it relates to something that uh, you're invested in through the group. I also remind you that hopefully you got the save the date. Our next meetup is going to be in Dallas, October 7th and 8th. It should be really interesting. Um, it's always a great time. People always come to these things, uh, you know, and you learn something, but really it's a great opportunity to meet the Wealth Formula Network. Um, and so uh, make sure to save the date and you should hopefully uh, very shortly, if you have not already uh, seen an opportunity to sign up and register for that event. Uh, we only we only uh, take about 100 people in each event because try to keep it small. So anyway, look out for that. Uh, otherwise, uh, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.